Good to see all of you here this morning. If you were not able to be here last week, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to Jay's sermon from last week. It's probably, I won't even say probably, it is the best Advent sermon I've ever heard. Um, it was excellent, and I commend it to you, and if you missed it, you ought, to, you ought to hear it. It was titled, The Leader You've Always Wanted, and really, I'm just going to say a lot of the same things <laughs> today. Uh, this one could be titled, No, Really, The Leader, He's the Leader You've Always Wanted. Uh, but the title of my sermon is The King Above All Kings, and we're just going to talk more about this coming King, Jesus. Our culture has an infatuation, and I, I need to warn you ahead of time, it's going to take a while to get to our text. I've got to lay a lot of groundwork, and then we're not going to spend a ton of time in our actual text, because it speaks for itself. It doesn't need a lot of unpacking, um, so just bear with me, follow along. I'm going to cover a lot of ground, so I'm going to stick to my notes and stay on time, okay? Our culture has an infatuation with superheroes right now, don't we? It seems like every couple months, a new Marvel movie comes out. DC's frantically trying to catch up, but Marvel right now owns it. And it doesn't seem like it's going to slow down, even though a recent Marvel movie was called Endgame. It doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. And with the onslaught of superhero movies, studios are constantly on the lookout for an actor or an actress whose name can carry a movie and maybe even a whole franchise. And they're really starting to reach here. Nobody would have imagined Chris Pratt, from his role in Parks and Rec, would be a leading superhero of a franchise. And if you don't know who Chris Pratt is, that's okay. Guardians of the Galaxy. And Paul Rudd? Really, Paul Rudd? I mean, he's a charming actor, sure. But a superhero? He's Ant-Man, by the way. Now, I want you to imagine that you are sitting at home, and you get an email, and you see it's from Marvel Studios, and they say, we're looking for someone who's relatively unknown to be the next big Marvel superhero, and you're at the top of our list, because you're really unknown. You have a year to prepare, and the role is yours if you want it. What do you do immediately over the course of that next year? What do you, what's the first thing you do? Hit the gym, yes. Absolutely, you're going to be a superhero, so you got to look the part, right? That's what happened last year to Kumail. I'm going to say his name wrong up front, but Kumail, yes, Nanjiani. Uh, except he wasn't really unknown. That slide, there we go. He wasn't really unknown. He's a pretty well-known, successful comedian, stand-up comedian, and an actor. He's been in a number of movies. Um, well-known, and he got a, a role in the next upcoming Marvel superhero movie. And honestly, I mean, he would say this himself, he doesn't strike me as a superhero, right? When you look at him. So he did what you said you would do and what I would do. He was paid lots and lots of money to spend a year doing nothing but working on his physical appearance. Nothing but working out. He had a team of trainers. He had a team of nutritionists feeding him for a year. And this is the result. I mean, come on. I've worked out for a year. I don't look like that. And it's not just because I'm white. I don't look like that. 
It's a fine specimen. He's 41 years old. He's a year older than me. All right, that's enough. He went from this, just a reminder, to this in a year. In a year. Now, we still have time, right? Now, in our minds, that's what superheroes look like, right? That's what they look like. That's what we've come to expect from our superheroes. Strong, fit, handsome, or beautiful, depending on whether you're Superman or Wonder Woman. We have an idea in our minds of what a hero should look like, and we're pretty picky. If he didn't do that, we probably wouldn't go see the movie. And when it came time for God to step into our world and rescue us from eternal disaster, he went in the total opposite direction. He came as a baby, weak, helpless, small, needy, smelly, whiny. When he stepped into his role as savior of the planet, he did it in the most unthinkable way imaginable completely counterintuitive. The world needed a hero, and he showed up as a baby? This is not what we were expecting. And of course it wasn't. Babies aren't threatening. They don't scare anybody. They can't lead armies or rebellions. They can't even talk, let alone overthrow entire regimes and empires. They don't rescue. In fact, more often than not, they need to be rescued. If it wasn't for the kindness of my heart, none of my kids would be alive. <laughs> Babies aren't threatening. They're not threatening. Nobody's been threatened by them. Which is exactly why our culture and this entire world system is desperate this time of year for you to keep God in the manger. Christmas is a multi-billion dollar machine, and it isn't really about Jesus anymore. It hasn't been for a long time long time. It's more about nostalgia now. Our culture, and this is really interesting, our culture by and large rejects God, but they are completely fine playing Christian hymns on the radio and in stores publicly. Songs that talk about the virgin birth, songs that talk about the earth receiving her king, as long as the baby stays in the manger. As long as they can keep Christmas confined to the crib, they can keep their Christian consumer segment happy. Nobody's going to be mad because they've thrown Christ out of Christmas, and they'll continue making their billions because babies aren't threatening. And we tend to fall for it. The nostalgia of this season feels good. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear all the songs and see all the lights and smell all the smells, and it's fun to be swept up into the season, and that's not bad on its own. Christmas can be nostalgic, and that can be a really good thing, but there is a danger in all of this. And the danger is that we would make the mistake of leaving Jesus in the manger, because babies aren't threatening. Babies are sweet and quiet and cuddly and safe, and they don't care how I spend my money or how I treat my neighbor or what I think of the marginalized. Babies have nothing to say about my materialism or my porn habit or my reputation at work. Babies aren't threatening. Kings are. Kings are threatening. In order for there to be a king, there must be subjects. And if I'm going to have a king, that implies I'm subject to him. 
And if Jesus isn't just a baby, but a king, our king, then he has a claim over every single area of our lives and corner of our hearts. He cares how we love our neighbors, how we spend our money, and what we do with our time and our bodies. He has expectations on us. A baby can't tell me what to do, but a king can. It's an inherent part of being a king. Kings make laws. Kings wage wars. Kings conquer. Kings own. Kings are threatening. And make no mistake, our culture, this world order, sometimes understands this a lot better than we in the church do. Like Herod, 2,000 years ago, understood the implications of a baby showing up in Bethlehem much better than a lot of the believers at the time did. Herod knew. He knew this wasn't just a baby. Babies aren't threatening, but kings are. And there's only one way to deal with a threat to the throne. Kill him. Don't let that baby get out of the manger. Our culture understands what Herod understood. If we see Jesus as the king that the scriptures say he is, everything will change. Our culture understands that if word gets out, if the baby makes it out of the manger, then Christians might see him for the hero, the king that he is. So for the love of all that is profitable, let us keep this king in the crib. If he gets out and lays claim to the wallets of Christians, billions of dollars could be siphoned out of our economy and into his economy. If this baby lays claim to the way they treat their neighbors, our entire political system could be jeopardized. And what's worse, if this baby can lay claim to their lives and their lifestyles, then he could also come after us. So let's sing the songs they like. Let's let them put up manger scenes all over the place. Let's let them believe that Jesus is the reason for the season, whatever they want us to say, but let's make sure that reason stays swaddled and safe and cuddly. You see, this is not what Advent season is for. Advent is a time for us to remind ourselves that Jesus isn't a baby anymore. Right now, he is a king. Right now, today, he's a living, breathing, seated king. And just as surely as he came into our world on that silent night more than 2,000 years ago, he will come again, but this time as a full-grown man who has ascended to the highest throne in the universe. And as the shepherds knelt before him in the manger, every man, woman, and child will kneel before him with their lips. Every one of them will declare that he is king above all kings and lord above all lords, either to their everlasting judgment or to their everlasting joy. Advent is a reminder that our hero is coming, and this time he won't be a baby. So what I'd like to do with our remaining time is go to the scriptures and see what it will be like when this king comes a second time. And specifically, I'd like to go to perhaps the most unlikely book of the Bible for a Christmas sermon, Revelation. And together we'll see what this season really is all about. But I have to set the stage first for Revelation, because it's kind of confusing. God coming to earth as a baby is a big deal. And I don't intend to undermine or downplay that. It's huge. The implications are enormous. And the Bible makes a big deal about it. Prophecies told about his arrival long before he came. Generations would pass down to generations the promise that a virgin would conceive a baby. And this baby would one day crush the serpent's head and put an end to the curse that had ravaged humanity and the world forever. This baby's arrival was a big deal. But once he came, the New Testament almost never mentions the baby again. 
The Gospels introduce the baby, this prophecy-fulfilling, shepherd-quaking, king-terrifying, angels-singing, virgin-born baby, and then almost immediately they start talking about his kingdom. And the New Testament practically never looks back to the manger. The overwhelming bulk of the New Testament doesn't tell us baby Jesus came. It says King Jesus is coming. And that's because we have been ushered into a kingdom, not a nursery. But make no mistake, we would all too often much prefer the safety of the nursery, wouldn't we? Why is that? Scripture from beginning to end would say that is because we are being besieged by other kings, and we often don't even know it. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are other kings fighting for dominion over us, whether we see them or not. And it's a lot bigger than a political scale. This is spiritual, and it's cosmic. Both the Old and New Testament paint a picture of a spiritual world at war with the righteous kingdom of God, and they show mankind participating, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes intentionally, over the main dominions, sex, money, and military might. You see those gods held up throughout the Old Testament and in prophecies over and over again, the gods of sex, money, and power, over and over again. The prophets often called them by the names of cities like Babylon or Sodom or by famous evil people like Jezebel or by the names of famous pagan deities like Baal or Molech. And throughout the story of Scripture, these false gods, these lesser kings, lay siege to the people of God. It wasn't just Babylon that captured God's people. It was these kings, scripturally, that captured God's people and captured the hearts of God's people. And over and over again, God's people are led captive. Not just literally, but spiritually. We see even the heroes of Scripture, men like David or Samson, even Abraham, falling into sexual sin, worshiping money and wealth, and trusting in might instead of trusting in the one true God. They're not kneeling before the true king. Always. Oftentimes, they're kneeling before these lesser kings and being led away, Scripture says, captive to them. Even if they haven't physically gone anywhere, they're captive to these kings and their kingdoms. And it's no different for us today, is it? Is it? The kings of this age, sex, money, power, are strong and compelling, and they are ruthless. And the church, especially the Western church, has knelt to their reign. It seems like almost weekly we hear about another sexual scandal rocking the church. Evangelicals are drunk in America with wealth and political power. You see it everywhere, but it's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here, in our own hearts, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Our hearts are prone to swear allegiance to these kings. Isn't it interesting how all three of these kings want to convince us that our most fundamental identity is tied up in their rule? Have you been led to believe that your sexuality is the most fundamental and personal part of your identity? So what if you want to sleep around? It's your body. Who are they to tell you what to do with it? Your king has declared you free. Go do what you want. 
just swear allegiance, and we do, because we're prone to wander. Or how about money? That king wants you to believe your most important identity is the number in your bank account, or the clothes you wear, or the job you have, or the car you drive, and this is the most important statement or thing about you. This is who you are. Your wealth or lack of wealth is who you are and what defines you. That's what this king would have you believe. How dare they tell you how to spend your money? You earned it, not them. Your king has declared you free. Go, do what you want. Just swear allegiance. And we do. We're prone to wander. Or how about power? This is a big one for us as Americans, and not just on a political level. I'm an individual. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. This king can be as subtle as my own independence. Nobody tells me what to do or as blatant and devastating as a bunker buster bomb. They knock down our towers and we destroy their cities. This king can convince us that the power to choose is the most important aspect of our identity. And whether that's an abortion or gender or drugs or anything else, nobody has the right to interfere with the power of your sovereign choice. This king says, I'll keep you safe and I'll give you autonomy. Your king has set you free. Go do what you want. Just swear allegiance. We're prone to wander. Sex, money, power. This isn't new. Over and over again throughout Scripture, you will see the people of God swearing their allegiance to these lesser kings and laying waste to their lives in the process. And over and over again, you will see God cry out to his people, these gods can't save you. These kings won't protect you or lift a finger to come to your rescue. They don't care about you. In Isaiah 46, God tells his people that these gods, these idols that they're carrying around on their backs, can't save them. And he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. Your gods aren't carrying you. You're carrying them. And you don't carry me, I will carry you. To the time your hair turns gray, to the end of your life, I will carry you. I will carry, I will save, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Somehow I got switched over here, Caleb, to a different slideshow. So that is, uh, we want Isaiah 46. There we go. Yes, I am God and there is none like me. I probably hit the wrong button. You don't have to carry me around. I carry you. At the end of the chapter, God says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. In other words, you don't even have to chase it. You don't, I'm bringing it to you. I'm bringing righteousness to you. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And there's the promise. I'm coming to the rescue. I will come in righteousness and I will deliver you from these oppressors, these kings. Not just the physical kingdom of Babylon. I will rescue you from there eventually, but I'm not just talking physical earthly kingdoms. I will rescue you from these gods of the age who are ruthless. I'm coming and Jesus was born of a virgin. And God was here with us 
Emmanuel. And for his entire life, Jesus preached the good news of a new kingdom, his kingdom. He wasn't like our politicians running around trying to build a political base. He wasn't begging people for, his, for their votes. He wasn't doing that. He wasn't saying what people wanted to hear. He was telling people the way it is, the way the kingdom operates, the way his kingdom operates and has always operated and will forever operate. And he was saying, you can either bow to me now or later, but eventually you will. You will bow. But come, come in, come in now. I will set you free, and who I set free is free indeed. He wasn't a baby anymore, but he was as meek as a lamb led to the slaughter. We put our king, our hero, our savior up on a cross and killed him, and you know the rest of the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering all of those lesser kings. The New Testament says he made a mockery of these lesser kings that we see throughout the Old Testament besieging God's people. He mocked them by going to the cross and rising from the dead and stripping them of their power and authority over all of us. Our king delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, the Bible says, into the kingdom of light. And with that, he was gone. He ascended to heaven to take his rightful throne, a throne above all earthly and spiritual thrones. And now he waits to come and get us and bring us into his kingdom. And we eagerly wait for his return, his advent. And that is what this Christmas season is about. Much more than a sentimental feeling or nostalgia. This is about a king. But that return is going to be cataclysmic. When our king comes back, he's not coming as a weak and helpless baby. He's coming as a mighty warrior king. Revelation says he's got a sword in his hand and a sword in his teeth. That brings us to Revelation. And if you will look briefly with me at a few passages in this book, I will show you your king. And it's my hope that together we'll worship him. There's a group of men that gathers in my man cave on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m. to read the Bible together. And over the past few months, we've been reading through Revelation. And it has taken us a long time because it's confusing. We've got to research a lot of stuff. There's a lot of strange imagery and metaphorical, symbolic language but the Spirit of God has been faithful to teach us, and it's been a, it has been a powerful study. And as a side note, I would urge all of you to be reading the Bible together in community. I can't tell you how many times I have read on my own, tried to read Revelation, and given up by about chapter 3. Because I don't, I just don't, or I'll, maybe this is even worse, I'll read through it and not retain anything that I'm reading. I'm just reading to check it off my list of Bible reading. Read the Bible in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've been doing that, uh, and this has been just a, a powerful study. And when I found out that I was preaching through or preaching on Advent, uh, we were just reading through towards the end of Revelation, and I realized, oh, this is Advent is this. Advent is this picture. The book opens with letters from Jesus to seven churches, urging them to stay faithful. And then the author John is caught up to heaven in a vision and shown the end of all time. It's historical. Revelation is historical, certain. From God's perspective, these events have already happened. It's as sure as your and my salvation. It's a sure thing. 
It's as certain as Jesus rising from the grave. And basically, it's a showdown between King Jesus and these lesser kings, the false gods of sex, money, and power. And all the kings of the earth have sworn their allegiance to these kings. And because we don't have time to read the whole book of Revelation together, we'll just skip to chapter 18. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 18. We'll be in some of 19. We're just going to skim through some of these chapters. The big, chapter 18, is the big climactic battle. Chapter 18 of Revelation is the announcement of the judgment of God over Babylon, which is representative of this entire, our entire world system. It's not just one city that God hates. God is at war and judging an entire system, our world order, and judgment is announced. The angel calls out with a mighty voice in verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Do you see the kingdoms represented there? Sex, money, military, might. You've got the kings of the earth. All three of these kingdoms are unraveling before the eyes of the entire world. And then another voice calls out. God calls out. And it sounds a lot like Exodus in verse 4. And I'm sorry that this is so tiny, but it says, come out of her. This is God speaking to his people. And even those, he's speaking to everybody saying, come out of her. Come out of this kingdom, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants, the economic power who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It's destroyed. It's vanity. Everything that people have sworn their allegiance to is laid barren before their very eyes. And they stand from a great distance and mourn and grieve because everything they've put their hope in has fallen and been destroyed by the word of the Lord. You would think all this destruction would lead mankind to repent. But just like Pharaoh, they harden their hearts and wage war against the God whose judgment has fallen. And in 19, chapter 19, if we skip ahead to verse 11, we see the advent of our king, Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What if, what if on uh, the FM station 101.1, instead of Christmas songs, we had songs about that. <laughs> that king. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Are you getting a sentimental feeling yet? And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. How utterly foolish. How foolish. We're no different than Pharaoh when the children of Israel were called out of Egypt and he says, I will war against this God. We're no different. The kings of the earth, the armies of the earth are no different. And they wage war on this king that has already laid waste to everything they've ever hoped in. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, representing, these, these two, the beast and his prophets, represent all of these uh, cosmic powers that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, all of these kings, these lesser kings that the Old Testament is talking about, they're represented by these two creatures. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur by the true king. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Do you know what we just read? That is the end of all of your false kings. That's their end. And all who swear allegiance to them. The king that lays claim to your sexuality and tells you that you can sleep with whomever you want or look at whatever you want, that king is going to lead you headlong into battle with Jesus himself. Think about that. And Jesus isn't going to lose. And the king that lays claim to your money and tells you it's yours, you've earned it, you can build bigger and bigger barns and houses and live a life of lavish luxury and forget the poor. They didn't work as hard as you. They didn't earn it. That king is going to lead you headlong into battle with King Jesus, and Jesus isn't going to lose. And the king that lays claim to your power and tells you there is no God who can tell you what to do. You're independent. Your body is yours. Your rights are yours, and you don't answer to anybody. Nobody can tell you what to do. That king is going to lead you headlong into battle with King Jesus, and Jesus isn't going to lose. But you will lose just like everyone else who is foolish enough to take up arms against the king above all kings. These lesser kings are on the wrong side of history. Why on earth would we swear allegiance to them? We will be destroyed right along with them when the true king comes. So what do we do? What hope do we have? Chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, this is Jesus again, it's over. The battle has been won. He's done. He has won the victory. The kings have been put in their place. He said, behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You don't have to buy this from me. I will give it to you. If you're thirsty, just come. Come and I'll give you life. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That last group of people is everybody who refuses to bend the knee to Jesus. You can have your kings. You can have these kings that are promising you your freedom, but in the end, it will cost you everything forever. Chapter 22. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each, for each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. He says it again. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Just come to him. That's all this king demands of you, that you come to him. Jesus is coming. And this time he's not coming as a baby. Babies aren't threatening. Kings are. But the good news is that babies can't rescue you either. This king can. This morning, who is your king? I mean really deep down when no one else is around, when nobody here is watching you, when you're outside of this place, who's really your king? Where is your allegiance? Take a minute and think about your life under the reign of these lesser kings, these gods who are not God. Are you enslaved to the king of sex? What is his rule like for you? Aren't you weary of him? He promises you freedom and happiness, but why then do you feel so worthless and exhausted and guilty all the time? What is that? What kind of a life is that? What would it be like to sever your allegiance to that king and swear allegiance to the good king who created sex as a good gift and who has good and glorious intentions, satisfying intentions for your sexuality that will never result in guilt and shame? No more being used. King Jesus will forgive you of your sins and empower you with his own life to live free. Or what about the king of money? What's it like to be submitted to his rule over your life? Do you constantly feel stressed and inadequate, like you can never have enough stuff? Certainly you'll never have as much stuff as those people across the street. But you work and you work and you work and you seem to make more and more money and you aren't any happier. Maybe you've traded your family for a paycheck. This king 
the king of money promises you the American dream, but why does it feel like a crushing, anxious nightmare? He's an evil king. Change your allegiance. King Jesus wants to set you free from enslavement to wealth and help you chase a better dream than the American one. He'll exchange the rat race for rest, and he will personally supply every single need that you have. The king of money will never do that for you. He doesn't offer you life. He wants to take your life. What about the king of power? Have you bought into the lie that politics hold the answer? We live in an utterly polarized society these days. Are you hoping in better laws for your salvation? Are you enslaved to getting your team elected? Or maybe this king doesn't come to you on a political level. Perhaps he's eminently personal. Maybe he comes to you in the name of empowerment or rights. Maybe he's telling you the way to freedom is not to submit yourself to anyone else's rules. Yours is the only choice that matters. But that itself is a rule and part of a kingdom. And it's given to you, put on you by a king. It's just not a good king. Scriptures warn that if you and I are left to do whatever is right in our own eyes, it will only lead to pain, suffering, and death. That's it. If we are only left up to our own choices, it will destroy us. That's what scriptures warn us. Surrender power and control to the true king. Because you know you don't really have it. You don't really have power and control, do you? The more you grasp for it, the less it feels like you have it, and the angrier and more frustrated you get. That's not rest. That's not a good king. Surrender to the king above the king of power, and he will give you the only right that's worth anything in this life, the right to be called a son or a daughter of the Most High God. The king of power never did anything for you, but, king, the, but the king above the king of power died for you. That's power. The king above the king of power came as a baby and died for you. And in power, like the universe has never seen, rose from the dead for you. That's a king worth swearing your allegiance to. That's a king who can set you free. Whatever lesser king might have his foot on your neck this morning, there is good news. You don't have to wait for the end of all things to get a new king. You don't have to wait for the second time that Jesus comes. He's reigning right now. And he is a good king and utterly kind. The scriptures say he has infinite riches in kindness toward us. He's not an oppressor or a tyrant or an imposter like these lesser kings. He doesn't offer you brutal subjugation. He offers you life and rest. Why would you wait? Bend your knee before him now. Own him as king over every area of your life now because he already owns it. Today, while you still have the opportunity, he says it right there in that last slide. Come. Let the one who hears all of this say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He offers it freely. Why would you wait? None of the other kings are offering you anything. Whoever this king sets free is free indeed. May the good news of the advent the coming of the true king, King Jesus, the king above all kings, sets you free from all these lesser kings this morning, and may you be free in him.
The prayer team will be down front this morning. If you're being abused by a false king, sometimes the prayers of a brother or sister can give you the strength and grace to repent and turn your allegiance to Jesus. Maybe you've never heard this idea of Jesus being a king, and you're confused about all this talk about a kingdom, and you'd like to find out more about what this means. These folks up front here that are going to be here to pray with you would love to talk with you more about that. There's no reason for you to leave this morning under the thumb of a tyrant. If you'd like to pray with someone, please don't delay. Just come on up here while we sing, and these folks would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Thank you for sending him all those years ago, and thank you for enthroning him above all of these lesser kings. Thank you for the freedom that he has announced and the freedom that he brings. Father, I pray that this morning you would set us free and that people would walk out of here free in the name of Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.